Well, if you'll please find a copy of God's Word and turn to Genesis uh, 14. Just as a reminder, if you don't have a Bible or a copy of uh, the English Standard Version from which we preach and teach here at the church, uh, we would love to give you one. You'll find it on the table right out the back double doors. Please take one uh, with, uh, with our love. Uh, we are picking up in Genesis 14. We're going to start at verse 17, excuse me, chapter 14. We're going to start at verse 17. Uh, let's pray and ask for God's help. Father, we need your help. Um, we need your help to be attentive to the reading of your word and to the preaching of it. Help our, our minds not to wander. Lord, help us by your spirit to dial in to Jesus, to, to be able to focus on him. Uh, Lord, grow us in your grace. Strengthen our faith. Change us from the inside out. We pray for unction and anointing of the hearer and preacher alike, and it's in the name of Jesus we ask it. Amen. Genesis 14, starting at verse 17. Hear now the word of the Lord. After his return, this is Abram, after his return from the defeat of uh, Kedileomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, which is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who are with me. Let Aner, Eschol, and Mamre uh, take their share. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, we're needy people, aren't we? Now, we do well. Uh, we, well, it's not good that we do it, but we do well in terms of trying to hide our neediness, to uh, present this face of I have it all together. That's what culture demands of us, right? The culture doesn't really want to know our problems, and, and heaven forbid that we actually become vulnerable with one another and admit that we need help. Um, that's, what, that's what we spend so much time doing. But so often, though, when we think about where we have come, it helps us remember just how needy we are, far more needy than we could ever imagine. Where do we come from? You know, I don't, I don't know all of your stories before you became Christians, if, if you are a believer. Some people have those crazy stories that, you know, I was, you know, dead in the streets against the curb, and, you know, and then Jesus, uh, you know, he saved me. And, and praise God if that's your story, but, but many others don't have those kinds of stories. But we shared together the same condition, which was that we were spiritually dead, dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh. We were enemies of God, enslaved to sin, and powerless to do anything about it. And so praise be to the Lord Jesus Christ, our priest and our king, who came to save us. See, our king, he came and he subdued us. We were his enemies. 
He had to subdue our hearts, which are in rebellion against Him. He subdued us to Himself, drawing us to Himself, convicting us of our sin by the Holy Spirit, and showing us that He is lovely. This is all part of His rule and reign over all creation and all of His creatures, that He would subdue us to His will. Praise be to God for that. But that's not the only thing that had to be done. So that's, that was his work as king, but, but also his work as priest. That he would come and deal with the very thing that separated us from God. The very thing that made us enemies of God, and that was sin itself. See, the king came as priest in order to die, in order to be raised again. And now, did you know that his, his, just as his kingly work continues... Of course, Jesus is king and continues to. Did you know that his priestly work continues as well? He intercedes before his father's throne on our behalf. Well, when Jesus showed up on the scenes about 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem, it wasn't like it came out of nowhere. All of the Old Testament pointed to this day coming when God would enter into the world as Messiah as king and priest and prophet, we won't talk about that today, but he's also prophet, that he would come to this world. And, and sometimes it's hard to see where some passages in the Old Testament point to Jesus. They do. And sometimes you have to work harder. And sometimes it's low-hanging fruit. And that's what we have in today's text. Jesus is all over this text. See, here is Abram in our text, from whose lineage the Messiah Jesus would come, and he is being blessed by the priest king Melchizedek, who is the forerunner of the priest king Jesus. Melchizedek may be a name that's unfamiliar to you, but it wasn't to the writers of Scripture. We're going to see it again in Psalm 110, and then two, basically two whole chapters are, are committed to Jesus and his connection to Melchizedek in, in Hebrews 5, 6, and 7. I, I guess that's three chapters. Well, last week we saw Abram rescue his nephew Lot from captivity. You remember how we got there? Uh, Lot was, had made some bad, bad choices. First, he, he lived near Sodom, and then he moved into Sodom. We'll see him again in Sodom. Next time we see him, he's going to be an elder in Sodom, a, a bad place to be. And because he had made these bad decisions, he was living in Sodom when it was ransacked, when it was captured by these five foreign kings from up north. And they are going to capture Lot, his family, and march them north to certain enslavement, perhaps death and worse uh, for many of the family members. But Abram led a small contingent, a coalition of 318 of the men from his own family or his own household, as it were, and then some allies of Aner, Eskol, and Mamre. And by God's help, God is the one who provides the victory. We're told that in our text today. By God's help, he is able to uh, defeat these five kings who had laid waste to the entire region with this small force. And he is able to recapture, to free those who have been captured. Now, along the way, as he's going south from Dan, which is at the top of Canaan, top of the Promised Land. He's heading back south to Mamre. And along the way, this 120-mile journey, he goes by a city, a city-state, that we know as Jerusalem. Now, at that point, it was called Salem. And in the valley of Shaveh, he ends up having a meeting with two other individuals. It's an international gathering, right? 
These two kings of these city-states, the king of Sodom and the king of, uh, of, of Salem, and then, and then Abram, who really is acting like a king, right? It's, a, it's an international gathering, and this is a, a, a big summit. And right outside of Salem, there's this meeting of these three people, and they're all very different. Now, on the one hand is the king of Sodom, who had previously been defeated by the foreign kings and whose land now lay in ruins. And yet, on the other hand, is this strange man who seems to come out of nowhere. He's given no genealogy. He's not called the son of so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so, which is real common in the Old Testament. Hebrews picks up on this, that he, he's given no genealogy. And we never hear of his line ever again. And it's strange because this is a, a godly man, seemingly the only other godly man outside of Abram's family. It's likely that Melchizedek wasn't actually his name, but rather his title. Why do I say that? Because Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Melchi, king, king of, uh, Zedek, righteousness. And he is king of Salem. Salem is another word, a version of shalom, which means peace. He is the king of righteousness, and he is the king of peace. So what a, what a diverse gathering. You, you have this, this incredibly godly man who's going to come out and, and bless Abram. And, and then you have this incredibly wicked man whose only claim to fame seems to be that he is king of the city-state that, that contains the most wicked people in the entire cosmos who soon will be wiped out. And then there's Abram, who has his good days and bad, right? But right now he's walking by faith. Well, they had come out, these two men, these two kings, to meet Abram for very different reasons. Let's look first at Melchizedek. Let's look again at verses 18 and 19. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now, Melchizedek's going to be referenced extensively in Psalm 110 and Hebrews 5 through 7, but apart from that, that's the only place he appears. He's a mysterious figure and yet a godly one. In the midst of an exceedingly ungodly Canaan, right? The promised land later will be populated by God's people, but right now it's not. It's full of all these ites, you know, the, er the Perizzites, the Amorites, you know, all these Canaanites. Uh, and then in the midst of all these terribly ungodly people, there's this little pocket apparently in Salem, which will become Jerusalem later, that is governed by, ruled by, served by a man who is called the king of righteousness. See, he serves and worships and leads in the name of El Elyon. That's the name here that's used of God. It's translated God Most High. Now, that's actually bad English grammar. It should say God, or highest God, right? But, but there's some, some funny stuff going on in the Hebrew, and we're trying to get at, with bad grammar, just how high God is. How high is he? He's the mostest, highest of all gods, right? And, and he is serving this one, and, and he comes out... And he's not a peer of Abram. He is his superior. Why do, I, why do we know that? How do we know that? Well, two reasons. One, it's always the superior who blesses the inferior. It's always the someone who is higher in social standing and class that blesses the inferior. And we're told that that's what happens here. But second, 
Abram is going to pay tithes to Melchizedek. That's all we're told. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything as, as a way of worship of God through this priest of, um, of El Elyon. So he comes out with the food of kings, not water and bread, which is what everybody would have eaten. He comes out with the food of kings with, with bread and wine. They enjoyed fellowship together, and, and then he blesses Abram in the name of the one true and living God, whom Abram also serves, and then he praises or blesses God. By the way, what a gift. What a gift to Abram. How lonely Abram must have felt like. You know, any kind of leadership is always lonely. And I, there, we, we're given no evidence that Abram knew this guy existed. And what a blessing from God that he would come out and greet him and then bless him in the name of the one true living God when everyone else is doing terribly wicked things following other gods. Doesn't that sound just like God? Have you had those times of deep and darkness? And then God just brings someone into your life. Uh, I was having a hard day and, uh, a couple weeks ago. And, uh, and you know who called me? Um, the son of uh, Jim Baird. I've never met him before. Uh, don't know this man from Adam. And he ended up praying with me by the end of the, our conversation. I said, like, that sounds a lot like something God would do, right? Well, this is exactly, exactly what happens with Abram? We have so many questions, by the way, about Melchizedek. We're just not giving answers to. But, you know, God had said, I will bless you. And I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And you will be a blessing. What does Melchizedek do here? He blesses Abram. It's confirmation of the promises and kind of a, a recommitment of the promises. Well, the second king, this third person, is Bera, king of Sodom. Now, whereas Melchizedek came out with fine food and wine and blessed Abram, what did the king of Sodom want? He wanted what was, he wanted what did not belong to him. He wanted what he was not entitled to. Remember, Bera, the king of Sodom, had been defeated in battle. His city had been plundered and he had fled. But look what he rudely asks in 21. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Now, I have to admit, the first time I read, well, not first time, ever, I've always thought of this passage as, okay, this is a shining moment for, for the king of Sodom, isn't it? He's not worried about the stuff. He's just worried about his people. That's actually not what's going on here. That's not what's going on here. See, back in those days, the conqueror had full rights to the people and possessions won in war. Bera had already lost all his people, had lost all his possessions, by full rights, Abram could now claim Sodom as his own territory, and he could be king of it. Now, by God's grace, he doesn't do that. And here's the defeated king of Sodom. He says, hey, I want half of what I lost. He wanted something that he did not own. See, one comes out to bless him, and the other one is just looking for stuff. But Abram now passes a great test. Abram has lots of tests through our text, and, and, and sometimes he does well, sometimes he doesn't. We have some more failures with Abram coming up. But today he does well. See, his help is in the name of the Lord, not in the riches that could be offered by an evil king of an evil city-state. See, he had made this promise to God. He said, I had lifted my hand 
to uh, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. To raise your hand was to swear, right? Raise your right hand and repeat after me. That's what he had done. See, he didn't want anybody to think, anybody to confuse where his blessings had come from. He had been offered the ill-gotten gain that did not belong to him of a wicked king. And instead of enriching himself and maybe telling himself he's going to use it for good purpose, he's going to put the devil's money to good work, or, you know, we have all sorts of, of rationalizations. He says, no, I have told God I will not take a thread or a sandal strap from you, lest you say, I have enriched Abram. He was waiting for the blessing of God rather than seeking the blessing of the world. And yet so often we seek the blessing of the world and say that it's coming from God. But Abram wasn't having anything of it. Instead, he only accepts that which his young men had already consumed and then lets his allies take their share. And thus the account ends. Now, there are a lot of morals we could pull from this thing. There are. But that's not the importance of this text. The importance of this text is that it points us to the greater Melchizedek and the greater Abram. It points us to Christ. See, this is not the last time we'll hear of Melchizedek. For a thousand years later, Abram was between 2,000 and 2,200 years before Christ. Uh, We fast forward a thousand years and we find some fulfillment of Melchizedek. See, we find a king, a righteous king, sitting on the throne in what was now called Jerusalem, not Salem, and his name was David. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's going to write Psalm 110, kind of about himself, but really about the Messiah who is to come. Let me read to you Psalm 110, verses 1 and 4. The Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, Adonai, so there's diversity here, we can get that later, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Verse 4, the Lord has sworn and and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What's going on on here? (laughs) David is picking up a, a word that you find nowhere else in Scripture until Psalm 110 after our text today. David, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is prophesying, is foretelling that the Messiah one day will come. And it's not just like, he won't just be anybody else. Just like anybody else, he will be God first and foremost. The Lord said to my Lord. But also, he will be a priest and a king whose ministry and reign will last forever. You know, Kia is a great car. It's a good value, I think, although nothing's cheap anymore. Is anything a good value anymore? I don't know. We went to Burger King yesterday, and it was, uh, you know how much a Whopper is? $8.50. But I digress. Uh, So Kia, (laughs) Kia's a great car. But what if you had a Kia that was also a Porsche? So you have the great value of a Kia, but you had the performance of a Porsche. You can't have those two things together. It doesn't work. What if, what if, you, you were a CEO and yet also the janitor? That doesn't work. So you have the 10-figure salary, but none of the responsibilities. Wouldn't that be great? Those things are mutually exclusive. And that's what we have in the Old Testament with a priest and a king. You could not be both. You could not be both. It would be like our president being the chief justice of the Supreme Court. The checks and balances don't allow it. And yet coming was one who was going to be both priest and king. 
But why do we need Jesus to be our priest? And by the way, if you have your Bibles open, I'm going to be all over Hebrews chapter 7 if you want to follow along. Why does Jesus need to be our priest? Well, quite frankly, you know, we need a priest. What does a priest do? He intercedes between us and God. And we are a needy people. And we need a mediator between us and God because we are terrible, rotten sinners, including especially the guy on the pulpit. And we need someone who will go between us and God. And so there was this whole line of priests in the Old Testament, according to the line of Aaron, according a part of the, the tribe of Levi. But here's the thing. It was pointing to one who would come, a priest who would be of a different order, of a different line, the line of Melchizedek, and that is Jesus. See, one of the problems was that every time that the, uh, the priests of the Levite order in the Old Testament, they would go in on the Day of Atonement and make sacrifices for the sins of the people, they had to do something else first. You know what they had to do? They had to make a sacrifice for themselves. Why is that? Because they shared the same problem as the people that they were mediating for, the ones whom they were doing business for. They were just like them. And so needed was a better priest. Needed was a perfect priest. And this is Jesus, our perfect high priest. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 and 27. For it was indeed fitting that we should have a such high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself up. Hebrews 6.20 says that he has become a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Who is our high priest? It's not one who sinned. It's not one who needs salvation himself. Instead, who is our high priest? It is the God-man Jesus who is salvation. And he has, as the better and perfect high priest, he has come with a better sacrifice. See, Hebrews 10.4 tells us that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. And yet, think about all the blood in the Old Testament that was spilled. What was it doing? It was pointing to the day. And the better high priest would come. And he didn't go in with, a, with, a, with the blood of bulls or goats. What did he do? He went in with his own blood. Hebrews 9.12 he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood of bulls and goats, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Where was that blood spilled? At Calvary. This is how serious our sin is, that it would require the blood of the God-man Jesus. And so we see in this the, the, the depth of our depravity, but also the loveliness of Christ that he would, he would um, consider it joy to run that race. He, he, would, he would die on the cross for us, not out of compulsion, not because he was made to. He wasn't reluctant. He did it because he loves you. He would lay down his life for you. See, his sacrifice was perfect because he was the perfect priest, sacrificing himself to the Father. And because it was perfect, it worked. 
in those moments when we wonder if our sins really are forgiven, let us think about the cross of Calvary. Let us think about the lamb without spot or blemish, the one who laid down his life for us, our great high priest whose name is love. We'll sing that at the end of our service today. It worked, and it's a one-time thing. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27. He did this once for all when he offered himself up. He did this once for all. Now, now this isn't talking once for all like as in for everybody. It's talking once for all as in how we use the word, I'm going to take care of this once and for all, right? You ever walked into a child's room or your garage, you know, and said, I'm going to take care of this once and for all. That's exactly what Jesus did on the cross. Once and for all, he took care of our sins. Did you know that your sins, if you're a Christian, if, you, if you're in Christ, they've been paid for, taken care of? You know, the world would have us running around like chickens with our heads cut off, trying to make up for our sins, and there's no rest outside of Christ. Right? That you would be better than your neighbor, or that your salvation would be in church attendance or good works. I lived next to drug dealers in Montgomery. I was better than they were, right? At least on the outside, but not in my heart. You know, priests didn't sit down. Did you know this, that there wasn't all the furniture in the temple? There was a lot of furniture in the temple. Did you know that there, there was not a seat? There was nothing to sit on? There wasn't a stool? Why is that? Because priests, the work of the priests never ended. And yet we said it earlier in our, uh, in our Apostles' Creed, where is Jesus now? Seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Why is he sat down? Because it is finished, y'all. Your sins have been paid for if you are in Christ Jesus. It is finished, he said. But that doesn't mean his priestly work is over. His sacrificial work is over. But his priestly work continues. Hebrews 7.25, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. What does that mean? Did you know that Jesus prays for you? I don't know about you, but when I, when I need serious prayer, I have these folks that I just consider prayer warriors. And I know it doesn't work like this, but I think they have a closer connection or a, a straighter line. They got the hot line to the throne, right? I know that it doesn't work like that. But there are people that it seems like the Lord just really uses who are prayer warriors. My dad is one of them, my mother. Do you know who's praying for you? Your Savior. Your God. Listen to what Dane Ortland said. One way to think about Christ's intercession then is simply this. Jesus is praying for you right now. Our prayer life stinks most of the time. Isn't that right? But what if you heard Jesus praying aloud for you in the next room? A few things would calm us more deeply. In the middle of the night when you can't sleep. On the terrors of the day. Or the terrors of your past or the hardness of the task before you, or the despair, the temptation, the struggle, your failure, your successes. When those things wake you up at night, what if you could hear the dull roar next door to you, the walls shaking, with the voice of the Most High God praying for you? Would that help you? Well, 
Jesus is our high priest. He's a better priest than Melchizedek. He's a better king than Melchizedek. We won't spend long here. First, we must say that Jesus is king because of who he is, because he is God. We see an important name in our text today, El Elyon, which means God Most High. All the other gods are false gods. And who is he? He is possessor of the heavens and the earth. This word in the Hebrew, possessor, can also mean creator. He is the creator and the possessor. He owns all things. He is, he is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the King of kings. He is the one true and living God. So he is king by his nature. But I want to highlight quickly two things. He is the better Melchizedek. Melchizedek, remember, it means king of righteousness. The kings of righteousness. This applies to Jesus. Indeed, he is the true king of true righteousness, completely perfect and righteous, holy and worthy of all honor, praise, and glory. But here is the thing. This king of righteousness, when we become believers in our conversion, we repent of our sins and put our faith in Christ Jesus, something happens. Well, a lot of things happen, right? One of the things that happens is that we are justified. And by justification, what that means is that Jesus takes the record of our sin. He is paid for on the cross. And do you know what we get in return? The record of His righteousness. As if we had never done anything wrong, but much more than that. We had always done everything right. We had completely fulfilled those two great commands, to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love neighbor as ourselves. And so when God looks at us, He sees the righteousness of His Son. The king of righteousness gives his record of righteousness to all those who bow the knee to him. Isn't that good news? The second thing we see with Melchizedek, he was not only the king of righteousness, he was also the king of a place, the king of Salem, which means peace. He was the king of peace. Y'all, there is no peace outside of Christ. Jesus is our peace. And ultimately, the greatest peace we need is peace with the Father. We come into this world as sinners sinning. Our sin comes out of our fallen nature. And there is enmity. There's conflict. There's a broken relationship with us and the Father. And yet our King of righteousness, our King of peace, who is our King and our priest, by His sacrifice, He brings us to God, restoring that relationship, bringing us to peace with Him. He is the King of peace. Well, how do, we, how do we land this plane? You know, I wonder, Abram and Melchizedek, I wonder how much of this they understood. I don't know. As they sat around outside the Valley of Shaveh, and, you know, they're sitting around, and there's the king of Sodom. They realize he doesn't have a clue. And rejoicing together. But, you know, I, I wonder if they're rejoicing together in heaven as they think about what the Lord has done with their two lines. First, you have the line of Abram, right? His promise of seed, and ultimately that seed was Jesus, who would bring blessings to his people and to the Gentiles. And then Melchizedek, his line, right? The only other priest in his line, the better high priest, who is also king, who is our savior. And one day I look forward to sitting down with them, as we rejoice together in the salvation that we have in our King and our Priest, Jesus. Let's pray. 
Our King and our Priest, Jesus, we thank you for your reign and rule. And we thank you for your sacrifice for us. We yearn, O King, for your return when all things are made new. Until then, O Lord, continue to subdue people to yourself, we pray, as they call upon you, as they think of your priestly work for them. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.